Today's sermon text is found on page 13 in your bulletin, or if you've got your Bible, better still, Ephesians chapter 2. Read this text for a second time. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is the word of the Lord. And Father, we pray that you will now move by your spirit with the word and powerfully transform us through this text. In Jesus' good name, amen. When I was a younger man, it used to kind of annoy me a little bit in Genesis that God told Adam and Eve they were going to die if they ate that fruit, and they didn't die. I felt like they kind of didn't get their comeuppance for that awful sin. And I hear people, you know, growing up say, oh, well, they died spiritually. And I'm like, yeah, but, you know, brain function, heart still beating, they didn't die. And I've thought a lot about that over the years. Did they really die? If I were to say to you, I have, um, I have been hearing my whole life that people are dependent on light, water, and air. I am my own person. I reject that. So I'm building a room in my house in which I intend to live independently of light, water, and air. The technical term for a room like that is a casket. If you live without that upon which your life depends, you will die. And that is why Adam and Eve died, because they cut themselves off from God who is life. And that's why Paul in this text says that sinners are dead. They are walking dead, hearts beating, brain function, etc., but they are dead in trespasses and sins. They are staggering, zombie-like, away from God, who is life. And he tells us that they are propelled in that death walk by three currents. They are propelled by the current of their own rebellious desires in what the Bible calls the flesh, in our humanity from Adam. And they are um, propelled also by a world that normalizes those rebellious desires, as we talked about last week. And they're propelled by a spiritual prince, a prince of the power of the air, he's called, who rules through those rebellious desires. So their own rebellious desires, a world that normalizes those desires, and then a spiritual prince who kind of pushes them to follow those desires, those three currents, that's the walk of the dead. And it makes that little phrase in verse 4 so beautiful, doesn't it? But but God, you know, it's not hopeless. Those are powerful currents, but God. And Paul's whole point in this text is that you, brothers and sisters, are no longer dead. You're not dead in your trespasses and sins. So this 
is no longer your walk, what Paul is describing here, but the other places in the Bible do tell us that these three currents are still things that you and I, even though we're alive, we still do contend with, yes? We still contend with passions of rebel against the Lord and a world that normalizes that, and we do contend with the devil or the prince of the power of the air. And so I'm preaching this little Lent series to try to assess, to assess our contending with these enemies. Do we recognize them? Do we, are we resisting their influence? And today, we talked about the world last week, but today I want to talk about this, this being mentioned in verse 2, this prince of the power of the air. It turns out that the children of disobedience have an influencer, the prince of the power of the air. And I want to begin today by just, I want to talk about recognizing the devil. Because if you don't see your enemy, you can do nothing about your enemy. I want to talk about recognizing the enemy. Uh, and then later I want to talk about resisting the devil. But let's just take a moment and, and just try to recognize, draw our crosshairs on this being known as the prince of the power of the air here. And I want to just pause to ask, so who, who is he? You know, if you ask someone down the street corner of Jackson and, and Jericho, you, you know, do you believe in the devil? They'd say, you know, you, you Bible-believing Christians, you're just so crazy. You believe in stuff like the devil. Well, who is this prince? Because a lot of people would think this is just really crazy, you know, kind of the stuff of mythology. It is really interesting if you think about the devil. It is interesting to think about how human cultures through time have looked at evil. Because if you kind of study the way that cultures have thought about evil, you'll notice that they definitely see evil as something that comes from us. Like we see crimes and perpetration of all kinds of evils by human beings. So, you know, cultures have recognized clearly evil comes from us, but there's also this very strong sense that evil also comes at us. It acts upon us. It even acts through us. It is the perpetrator of evil, the human perpetrator of evil over there, but evil is also that monster, almost like outside of us, that we fear and we loathe. Now, in cultures that were close to, the, to nature, spent a lot of time just looking at nature, they, they would observe that there are in nature forces that obviously really bless our life, that give order to our life and, and nourish our life, the sun and the water cycle and all these things, but there are also forces in nature that profoundly disrupt and even destroy human life. And as people in various cultures have studied this kind of, this duality of, you know, what orders and what disorders, this has sometimes led to kind of dualistic cosmologies. You know, they look at the cosmos and they kind of have this dualism that basically says that order on one hand and chaos on the other hand, this is kind of yin and yang, right? You know, the, the, the good and the bad, these are just kind of two, uh, two sides of the reality that we all live in kind of the order and chaos, the, the, the known order and the unknown chaos. And as they've thought about that, you know, it's obvious that human beings can contribute to the chaos side. I can go burn my neighbor's barn down, for example. But also that chaos sometimes just kind of bursts through and we just end up being subject to it because maybe lightning strikes my neighbor's barn and burns it down for me. So just looking at nature, you could see evil comes upon us even as it comes from us. And in religious societies, obviously, they would have not only an understanding of natural forces, but they would also say that there are spiritual powers at play in all of this. That when I do good or I do evil, it's not just myself that is acting. There are all, the, the will of the gods is also being played out. 
that maybe the will of the chaotic gods is played out when I'm doing evil. The will of the more ordering gods, like Athena or Apollo, are played out when I'm doing good. And it's interesting today, so I mean, now, now this is 2023, and today we fantasize that we live in a culture that's really, really kind of distant from nature. You know, we're not subject to nature anymore because technology, and you know, we're certainly very far from all those old, outdated religions. And we kind of look at the world now a lot more like a machine, but it is interesting to notice that even in our world, in 2023, we have not escaped those ancient myths about evil. Because we would totally say today that we human beings run the machine. There are no devils to blame in 2023. There are no gods to blame in 2023. But it is very interesting to notice how there is a growing sense in our hyper-modern world that this machine kind of has an agency of its own. That there is this demon, I don't think that's too strong a term, this demon of power with its twin heads of managerial control on one hand and structuralized oppression on the other. And this demon of power stalks through every human interaction, every system of interactions in this world. So we're the ones, you know, kind of running things and live in the world, but there's also this sense that even as we contribute ourselves to this systemic evil that's all over, just as surely that demon of power and evil and oppression and management, it is surely also working upon us and even working through us. And so there's still that kind of ancient myth, even in a very postmodern sort of mentality. Well, the Bible, you know, just kind of cuts through all of that because in the beginning, as you know, the good God created all things very good. There is no dualism in the Bible. There is no yin and yang. It is not good and evil are both ultimate. Order and chaos are both ultimate. Who's ultimate? God is ultimate, which means goodness is more original, more ultimate than evil. It means that order and peace and harmony and love, that is ultimate reality. Chaos and destruction and conflict and antithesis, that is, that is a later thing. So there's this original goodness. But by the time that Adam and Eve rebel against the Lord in the Garden of Eden, you can see, and a lot of times your kids will ask you how this, what's going on here, and we're not really told. They are not just rebelling, are they? They are joining a rebellion. They are choosing a side in a rebellion that already exists before Genesis 3. We're not told where that serpent comes from, but he is not a friend of God. And when Adam and Eve join that being, working through that serpent, take his word over the word of the Most High, that power at work through that serpent, we're told, becomes our overlord, our spiritual overlord. And down through all the centuries of misery since that day when we first turned against God, this spiritual power who worked through that serpent that day, he goads sinners, not overpowering them, just goads them through their own rebellious desires. He pushes and goads them toward the ultimate destruction that he just delights in because he hates God, he hates the image of God, and he delights in the destruction of human beings. And so he just pushes us through our own rebellion to sin against the Lord and be destroyed. Herman Bovink describes this sort of view of evil and how our particular sins fit into this overall picture. He says, it's not when we fix our attention on a single sin 
or the sins of a particular person or people, but instead we fasten our attention on the whole realm of sin in mankind, taking advantage of the light shed on it by Scripture, then we understand what the real nature and intention of sin is. It is nothing less than enmity against God. And in the world, sin, evil, aims at nothing less than sovereign dominion. And every sin, even the smallest, serves that final objective in connection with the whole system. The history of the world is not a blindly operating evolutionary process, but an awful drama, a spiritual struggle, centuries long in duration, a warfare between the spirit from above and the spirit from below, between Christ and Antichrist, between God and Satan, unquote. So that's the prince of the power of the air, been with us since before we even sinned. Now, having taken just a moment with his identity, still talking here about recognizing the devil, having taken a moment with his identity, I just want to take a moment next under this first point to, to, to recognize his influence. So we've looked at a little bit at who he is, but now what does it mean when the Bible says this spirit, this prince, is, you notice the language there in verse 2? He is at work in the sons of disobedience. He is a busy being. And how do you recognize when the devil is at work in the world or even just specifically in your own life that the devil is at work in a particular way in those who are not children of God. They are children of disobedience against him. But the devil also works on God's people, God's children. So how do you recognize that this is something the devil is doing? I've had a lot of fun with you guys over the years hearing some of your stories about this, but Christian literature, as you know, is full of very colorful portrayals of the devil's work. When I was a teen, the, the big rage was Frank Peretti's book, uh, This Present Darkness, Later Piercing the Darkness. Anybody read Frank Peretti? So in Frank Peretti's work, which is great fiction, um, basically the, the devil and the devils, you know, the, the minions who serve Satan, they're kind of like these invisible bat-winged stormtroopers. You can't see them, they have these sort of bat wings, and they just kind of float around, sort of, you know, insinuating themselves into people's lives and kind of controlling them in various ways. So that was kind of the Peretti picture, and you can find a lot of that in Christian literature. You move to a, kind of another part of the spectrum, you have C.S. Lewis, who in his screw tape letters depicts the devil and the devil's work less in terms of bat-winged sort of stormtroopers and more as bureaucrats. Hell is a kind of giant bureaucratic system. And the influence of the devil is kind of this bureaucratic stifling. That was very intentional for Lewis. He says in his uh, preface to, to Screwtape, he says, I like bats much better than bureaucrats. <laughs> but I think that Screwtape, the Screwtape letters, I actually think is probably closer to the truth than some of the more exotic stuff that you get from, say, Peretti. Because what Lewis points out in Screwtape letters, make of it what you will, is that the devil works fundamentally not by force, but by lies. Jesus said, Satan is a liar, and he is the father of lies. And that is clear in the very first subversive maneuver that this prince worked out on earth. And if you look at Genesis, uh, Genesis 3, you notice his tactics have not really changed that much. Whether he is undermining your love for God or undermining your love for other people, it's really kind of the same how his tactics work. And notice how Herman Bobbing describes the process in Genesis 3 when he tempted Eve, and it's no different today, how he gets at people and pulls them into sin. And Bobbing says this, he says, first, God's prohibition, don't eat that fruit, 
it's presented as an arbitrary imposed burden, an unnecessary restriction of man's freedom. I mean, Satan would just, he could be a, a pundit in 2023. God said, don't, your freedom is being restricted. That's the first thing. And thus the seed of doubt is sown. So that's where it begins. Satan gets in with some doubt. God is restricting our freedom. Then doubt developed into unbelief by the thought that God had given that prohibition only out of fear that man would become like him. So from doubt about whether this is a good thing to unbelief, God is doing this to keep you from becoming like him, becoming really alive and powerful in turn. Un this unbelief stimulated the imagination and made violation of the prohibition appear to be a path that leads not to death but to true life. So doubt, then unbelief in God's motives, then imagining that life leads away from what God said. Then imagination influences the inclination. So the forbidden tree becomes a delight to the eyes and a desire for the heart. So the imagined, the good life is over there, creates desire for the very thing God said, do not eat. Having taken hold, that desire drives the will and gives birth to the sinful deed. So doubt, then unbelief, then imagining life elsewhere, then desire for that which God has forbidden, and then the will kicks in, and now you have the sinful deed. And thus, as James puts it, lust begets sin. And I really think that is a, a very important thing to notice because Satan's still working on every one of us the exact same way to get you to doubt God then to, to have unbelief towards God's very character then to imagine a better life then to desire that better life away from God then your will chooses it and then you do it. You go into sin. And I think it's important to notice that because, you know, I grew up in a church that believed in, you know, exorcisms and I just think that stories about sort of people contorting and foaming during an exorcism you know, that sort of dramatic stuff of power encounters with the devil and his minions, I think that can really obscure the fact that way upstream from any sort of demonic possession, quote-unquote, like that, way upstream from it is the planting of lies. The planting of lies in the mind and heart and a surrender to the promises of those lies and the power of those lies. But Lewis, I have to say, I, I think what I've just described what Bob here has described, it might even still glamorize the devil's work too much. Doubt, unbelief, imagination, desire, will, deed. It might all actually glamorize Satan's work a little bit too much even still because the devil's best work, if I can use that term for the devil's work, is actually not through explicit lies about God, serious doubts and questions about God. His best work is not through great, magnificent visions of the good life apart from the Lord. If only. <laughs> if only that's how the devil works, right? Because here's the thing about great doubts and great questions and great desires that are in rebellion against God. Because at least they are great. If you have serious questions about God, those serious questions might actually in time drive you back toward the God in whom alone they can be answered. If you have great desires for great things you think you can get away from the Lord, the sheer greatness of those desires might in time turn you back toward the God in whom alone those desires can be satisfied. If only Satan were busy stirring up deep questions, ultimate questions, powerful passions and desires. Alas, his best work, quote-unquote, 
is when there is no fire at all. There is just dull, bland, normal, ordinary godlessness. People are just lukewarm. 20 years after he wrote Screwtape Letters, Lewis wrote another little piece in 1961 called Screwtape Proposes a Toast. It is a chilling piece. This is 1961. Screwtape rises at a feast of devils, and it's an interesting experience he's describing because the devils are all quite disgruntled about the fact that this anguish, the souls on whose anguish they are feasting at this feast, these are just weak, insipid, pretty lousy souls. They're just thin. They have no flesh to them. They're just kind of meh. And there's sort of this grumbling in the hall of the devils about we have to feast on the anguish of souls like this. But Screwtape rises to toast the fact that in this society where these devils are working, human desires and passions have finally just withered down to one basic desire, and that is the desire to be undisturbed, to just be what one is. These are, says Screwtape, residual puddles of what once was a soul. So muddled in mind, so passively responsive to environment, that it was very hard to raise them to that level of clarity and deliberateness at which mortal sin becomes possible. Unquote. Swipe right. Swipe right. Swipe right. Swipe right. Gradually, says Uncle Screwtape, there comes to exist at the center of these creatures a hard, tight, settled core of resolution to go on being what it is, and even to resist moods that might tend to alter it. It is a very small core, not at all reflective, they're too ignorant, nor defiant. Their emotional and imaginary poverty excludes defiance but it will serve our turn he says because here at last is a real and deliberate though not fully articulate rejection of what the enemy calls grace because when you just want to be who you are doing your thing comfortable left alone get out of my life I just want to keep being normal now you are hardened against grace and the devil has done his best work for there is no hunger in you that could lead you to God you're just a stale residual puddle of a soul. And that, I think, is probably the devil's best work. So recognizing the devil, but what of resisting him? Because I'm not talking to a room full of people who are dead in their sins and trespasses. With you guys in this room today, who are followers of Jesus, the devil's problem is that you're not dead. The devil's problem with you is that you are alive. And so he must contend in you guys with something the Bible calls faith. It is faith in you guys, that the devil must try to undermine. And it is faith, interestingly, that Paul says is the very shield that you must take up to extinguish the flaming arrows of the evil one, or as Peter puts it in his letter, resist the devil firm in your faith. And so the devil's going to come after your faith. You can really boil down most of what he's doing in your lives to the fact he is going after your faith. He will come after your faith, first of all, with distraction, 
You know, if you cannot choke a believer's faith, just choke the word out of their life that, that is the word they believe in. So you've got a strong believer. The only problem is after a while, this strong believer isn't hearing the word anymore. So there's nothing for faith to feed on. Well, now the devil's kind of accomplished his work. He's just distracted you from the word. He can't choke your faith out, so he'll choke the word with all kinds of riches and cares and pleasures. Your life is so full of stuff. Your head is so full of noise. Some of you can't even remember the last time you seriously meditated on the word of God. That's how the devil goes after a believer. Failing distraction, he comes after you with doubt, especially when you're suffering, especially when your life is really hard. You are just, you're burdened. God doesn't feel like he loves you. It doesn't feel like God loves you. And the devil will come at you with the, the arrow of doubt. God cannot be trusted. Loving God is a drag. Loving my neighbor, it's just soul-sucking. Surely my life would be so much better if I were not, you know, faithfully, painfully, through sin, through suffering, trying to follow God and please him. Surely the good life must lie on the other side of a fence, away from all of this. And, you know, the devil's work here to plant doubt in you guys, it's actually harder than it was in the Garden of Eden because you wonder sometimes what was Eve's problem. She was looking around at an entire creation made by the good God, what was not to like. But you guys don't just know God as the creator. You know God as your father through Jesus Christ. And so for the devil to get in your ear and make you really believe that God cannot be trusted, that he's not for you, that being away from him would be better. To really get at that, he's got to sort of block your whole view of Jesus and his death and resurrection and block out the whole kingdom of God. And he's really got to get through some stuff to take your faith out with doubt. Now, maybe he'll get through sometimes, though, and he will succeed in getting you to fall, to rebel against your father, to sin against the very grace that saved you. Now the devil has an even bigger problem because he cannot take that sin of one who is covered by the blood of Jesus. He cannot take that sin then to God and accuse you anymore. He can't go to God and call for your destruction. He has no more power of death because you have, the Bible says, an advocate in the courtroom of God. An advocate who, as Paul says in Colossians 2, took your record of debt to God with its legal demands, and he nailed that record of debt to the cross. And in nailing your debt to God to the cross and crucifying it with his own, uh, when he, as he shed his own blood, Paul says, in doing that very thing, he disarmed the devil. He took the devil's weapon out of his hand, and he put the devil to open shame, because now, no matter how much you sin, you have an advocate, and you can stand before the Father in peace and joy and loved and accepted and forgiven and righteous through a righteousness given to you by Jesus himself when you have none of your own, which is always. And so the devil cannot, he must here assail you with despair. He must get you to doubt that you have that advocate and that you are under that grace. He must try to ply upon your mind not the conviction of sin that drives you in repentance and faith to your Savior, to your Father, but to get planted in your mind that sense of condemnation and despair that will drive you away from God and away from his grace. This is the devil and his work in Christians, so let me give you very briefly then a resistance plan. A few things for resisting the devil. Because, brothers and sisters, I, I, I'm not saying this to be melodramatic, he is at work right now in all of us. Resistance plan to the devil's influence. Number one, watchfulness. You guys that are dozing right now, wake up. Watchfulness. Vigilance. Be sober. Be awake. 
Keep each other awake to the devil's presence. Keep each other awake to the devil's wiles. Keep each other awake to this. Not so you can blame the devil. You can, we Christians can never say the devil made me do it. it. There's no such thing. We're not awake to the devil to you know, give him too much attention or certainly to blame him. But keep each other watchful so you can keep that shield of faith very much in play. Keep it up. Keep it active. You lower that thing, the, fire, the flaming darts, they are coming. Satan hates your relationship with God. He hates it. He hates your relationships with each other. He hates the body of Christ because he hates Christ. He hates your marriages. He hates your kids. He hates your friendships in the body of Christ. He just, he hates God and everything God is doing. And he is going to assail you night and day until you go to glory. So be awake. The apostle Paul says, we are not ignorant of Satan's devices. We are watchful together Satan is working right now. Let's be sure that we have got our faith stirred up and we are watching against the ways in which he insinuates himself among us. Paul says, for example, in relationship to anger in Ephesians 4, 27, he says, don't let the sun go down on your wrath and don't give an opportunity to the devil. You got to keep certain doors closed. Keep certain shields up, watchfulness. Second thing, very important. I might, might have wanted to put this first. Second piece in the resistance plan. A steady diet of God's mercies. You guys, and you're good at this, but keep at it. You need to be in worship, faithfully in worship, because you need to hear the gospel. You think you can ever put the gospel, the good news of God's mercies to you in the rearview mirror? I'm, I'm like set. I'm like, I'm like immune. You're not immune. I'm not immune. We need to hear constantly you are loved by God. You're, you need to hear every week your sins are forgiven. Jesus is your advocate. You need to be feasting on that. Hearing again and again, you are not under law, you are under grace. Hearing again and again, look at the love of God by which we are called his children. Being brought again back to the unsinkable ship of your baptism and its promises, a steady diet of God's mercies together. That is crucial. Third thing in the resistance plan, watchfulness, a steady diet of God's mercies. Third thing, big deal here, grateful enjoyment, grateful enjoyment of creation. This is best done together. Why? This is not just indulgence. There are many things in creation that many people enjoy who don't worship God at all. But we as children of God gratefully enjoy creation because we are cultivating through that joy in God, contentment in God. We are constantly reminding ourselves every good gift is from above. Why does that matter so much, especially for kids and for young people? Because as you're enjoying your father's gifts in your father's world and you are thankful and you're stirring up gratitude, what that does, brothers and sisters, is it heals our imaginations. It heals our imaginations in the sense that it reminds us all life is with God. All goodness is from God. Everything interesting in the world is from God. You go outside of God and his realm and it's just barrenness and wilderness and death and dry bones. Things flourish only where God rules. And the more you enjoy his rule and reign and his provisions for you, the more you're healing your imagination. And that pushes out over time what Lewis calls the ruthless, sleepless, unsmiling concentration upon self, which is the mark of hell, unquote. Fourth thing, and I'm almost done, a stubbornly hopeful narration of history. 
a stubbornly hopeful narration of history. You keep your eye on the story of God's kingdom. Because in the Garden of Eden, when Satan had gotten Adam and Eve to sin, humanity had sided with the serpent. Guess who God sided with? God said, I'm with the seed of the woman. And that is the arc of history, that God is saving his people in this world and every outpost of hell will be routed. And no matter how things look in the news, you keep your eye on that. That is raising the shield of faith against Satan's lies. And finally, and very importantly, a fifth piece in the resistance, acceptance of suffering as the path to glory. Acceptance of suffering. This is God's ordained path to glory. It, the sufferings of this time, says Paul, are preparing for us an eternal weight of glory that is actually beyond compare. That is a shield you need to raise often because sometimes the suffering feels like God is just killing you. Paul says, no, it's, it's laying up an eternal weight of glory for you. God is working in your suffering, sometimes to discipline you, sometimes just to strengthen your faith. And God, through it in a mysterious way, is working for you in the suffering because in the end, all things will be brought into judgment and all things will be made right. And Paul says, looking toward that day when God sets it all right and straightens it all out and heals all that is sick and beautifies all that is ugly and reverses all that has been twisted and he just does that in the end, that final hope, Paul says, the sufferings of this present time aren't even worthy to compare. God is at work in you and for you acceptance of suffering as the path to glory so Satan doesn't get in your head like a brain worm in your mind. And so Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, 16, despite the assaults of the evil one, which are happening constantly, cruelly, persistently, relentlessly, he says, we do not lose heart. We are grievously assailed by the evil one. But in the words of the prophet of old, rejoice not over me, O my enemy. When I fall, I shall rise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. Amen. Give us your peace, O Lord Jesus, our Father in heaven, great Holy Spirit, as we battle in this world, enable us to stand, and having done all to stand, in Jesus we pray. Amen.